And if you need a Bible, there's, uh, there's some Bibles in the back um, that are yours for the taking. So, um, Acts 15, 1 through 21. This is God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension among, and debate among them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church... They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this manner. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows my heart, bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of, of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And and after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the word of God. Your Bibles open the Acts chapter 15, and what you will find there, as you have heard read, and we reflect again, this is a very important chapter in Acts. 
In fact, it could be argued that it is as important a chapter in the book of Acts as any you will find. It's an important moment in the history and the life of the church. And we've already seen a couple of important moments already. You remember Acts chapter, chapter 6. It's a very important moment in Acts chapter 6 because there, there was the potential for division, for a great schism to happen in the church. And by God's grace and by his spirit, the, the leaders of the church were able to stave that off. But in Acts chapter 6, the issue was practical and the issue was social. It actually hinted at discrimination, if you might remember. In Acts chapter 15, is a very, very important issue again. And it's an issue that is also practical, and yet it's... The emphasis is on the theology of the church. So you look at Acts chapter 6 and, and you see the question that they are asking there is, who should be served? But in Acts chapter 15, they're asking the question, who can be saved? And those two are very important questions that the church is always having to ask and to answer. Because both of those questions have the potential for causing division, and indeed they have. They almost did here in the early church, and unfortunately has, through the history of the church, caused much division. And we saw in Acts chapter 6 how the church handled it. We'll see in Acts chapter 15 how the church handled this second potential crisis. It's a very important issue. The issue was immense, as John Stott said. It was, it was immense for what was at stake was the way of salvation. The gospel was actually in dispute. The very foundations of the Christian faith were being undermined. That's how important the issue was. The very gospel itself was at stake. In fact, it was so important, as you see in chapter 15, that the leaders decided that it was necessary to have a meeting, to call a church council, to gather all the leadership in order to resolve this issue. And you see how important it was for a couple of things, because of a couple of things. One, where this meeting was going to be held. You can see how important it was because this council was going to be held in Jerusalem. Now we've seen that the church has been spreading. It had long left Jerusalem. It had spread unto the further parts of the Gentile world at the time. But when there was necessary for a meeting to be called to address an important issue, they were not going to meet in Antioch. They were not going to meet in Samaria. They were going back to the beginning. That's how important it was. Everybody needs to come up to Jerusalem. We got an important meeting. But not only do you see its importance on where it was held, you see the importance of who was there. They called all the apostles. And it just wasn't no local church meeting where you just get together and try to figure it out. They said, no, we need everyone here. 
The apostles and all of the leaders need to be gathered because this is an important issue. And what we say here and decide here is going to impact the church everywhere. So you see its importance by where it was held. You see the importance of who was there. You see its importance by what was discussed. This was no trivial matter. They was not trying to decide what color we were going to paint the walls. The issue was salvation. The issue was the person and the work of Christ. The issue was the sufficiency of Christ. The issue was the very message that we proclaimed. The issue was the very foundation upon which the church stands. How important it was. You see where it was held. You see who was there. And you see what was discussed. That issue here was the person and work in Jesus Christ. And how important that is. Because, beloved, if you get this wrong, there are eternal consequences. There's, there, there's a lot of things that we get wrong. But if you get this wrong, you cease to be a church. You're not a church anymore. You know, there are really, really, really very few things that we need to be falling out about in the church. Very, 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 very few things. And unfortunately, we fall out and have discussions over all kind of issues that really don't rise to any significant level. However, when it comes to the person of Christ... When it comes to how a person is saved, beloved, there is no more important discussion that should be had and it should be given every ounce of our energy and passion and debate and even divide if necessary. It's what we give our passion and our hearts to. You want to argue about something? Argue about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Had that be your passion. Nature of salvation and how people are saved. That's what the church decided was important. And it called a conference or a council on, on uh, the time and place of when Jesus would return. When arguing over eschatology. That forms for good discussion. But they didn't tell anybody to come up to Jerusalem for that. It's the personal work of Christ. The gospel that we preach. It's what we see in Acts 15. If you know a little context, you know Paul and Barnabas, they're fresh off of their missionary 
trip and they're, they're rejoicing with the church in Antioch about the wonderful fruit of the gospel that God has wrought among the Gentiles. And now they're back in Antioch, the church that has sent them out. And while they're there in Antioch, they're rejoicing with the saints there. They're rehearsing what God has done on this missionary trip. And apparently, some of the brothers up in Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem church, had gotten wind of Paul and Barnabas and the rest in their ministry among the Gentiles. And they were taking exception because what they were hearing was not enough. They had heard some good things, but they hadn't heard enough. Didn't sound like Paul and Barnabas were saying enough when they were preaching. So they decide that they're going to come down to Antioch and set the record straight. They get to Antioch and they take issue. What Paul and Barnabas are saying. Paul and Barnabas and the rest are just rehearsing how God has saved these Gentiles. And then these men from Judea speak up and they say, hold up. I hear what you're saying, but unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, Paul. Did you mention that? Brothers and sisters, a firestorm went off. When Paul and Barnabas and the rest heard that, the Bible says that they engaged in heated discussion and debate. Because you can best believe that Paul was not backing down from that. This is the apostle of love. He wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is, it is Paul who said, get along with all men as, as, as best you can. But when these brothers came from Jerusalem, insisting that Paul preach a gospel that required circumcision according to Moses, Paul was outraged. This apostle of love was outraged. And there was much debate. And there was potential there for division. Because you better believe that Paul was not going to stop. And if they insisted, they would have split. When the brothers come down from Jerusalem, bring this message about circumcision. Now, beloved, circumcision in the Old Testament was a very important rite and ritual in the nation of Israel. It was an identifying mark, was an identifying sign chosen by God. Chosen by God to set his people apart from all the other nations. Now, it's hard for us to imagine that today because 
of the little procedure that is circumcision today, most baby boys in our country have this procedure done and we think nothing of it. But in that time, it was not a common practice. In that time, in fact, nobody did that except the Jewish people. And it was their sign of separation from the rest of the world. It was that which marked them out as people of God. And you get a sense how important it was then. He said, we are different. We are separate. We have our God's mark upon us in our community. And so then you get a sense of when these brothers come down from Jerusalem, what they're saying. It's an important thing. This has always marked out the people of God. Why would it not mark off the people of God now? You know that, Paul. You were raised this way. You were circumcised. You see how important and passionate they would have pleaded with them. They took pride in it as a mark of God. However, what they didn't realize, beloved, is that circumcision, even from the beginning, was just a sign. It was a sign. It was a sign, and as we said, what signs are. Signs point us to a deeper reality beyond themselves. That's what circumcision was. So they should have been understanding that the circumcision of the flesh was just a foreshadowing of what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 29 of the circumcision of the heart. It's what it was pointing to. The circumcision of Moses was just a sign pointing us ultimately to what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, which is the circumcision of Christ. Once the reality comes, you have no more need for the shadow. Once I get to Atlanta, I don't need the sign saying that way to Atlanta. I'm here. This is what they missed. And they missed it, not because God didn't tell them. In Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, in verse 6, it says, and the Lord your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That was always the point. It's the circumcision of the heart. It's the setting apart of the people of God by what God does ultimately in the heart. 
They had taken what was meant to be a sign and they were making it an essential. And how does the apostles respond? Well, they respond with three things I want to share with us this morning that I think are very important for us as we seek to understand even life in our church and the life of the church in the world that we have today. In the first way, they responded by insisting upon the simplicity of the gospel. And the, the second thing they demonstrated is the unity of the gospel. And then they also demonstrated what is truly the foundation of the gospel. But the first thing you see how they responded is just in the simplicity of the gospel. The men from Jerusalem were were bringing in this teaching that was essentially what it's doing there is complicating the gospel. Okay, it's making the gospel more than what God has made the gospel to be. And so it's complicating the issue. In other words, they were adding to the message of Christ. They were adding to the sufficiency of the work of Christ. And the way that Paul and Barnabas and those there in Antioch responded to them was to insist upon the simplicity of the gospel. It is a simple message, beloved. But what complicates the message oftentimes is what happens here, and it's really just legalism. Legalism complicates the message. Now, what is legalism? Legalism is essentially the, the, the improper use or misuse or abuse of the law of God. Taking the law of God, taking what God says and improperly applying it, improperly using it or abusing it. But it's a trap. But legalism is a trap. Because legalism is couched in biblical language. And because it's couched in biblical language, it becomes a trap that many people, particularly Christians, fall into. And this is what happened. This is what happened to them. It was couched in biblical language. They were quoting the Bible about circumcision. Because that's what legalists do. That's what we do when we're being legalists. We quote the Bible to bring people into bondage of our opinions. That's why it's a trap. If you're not discerning, all of us are susceptible to falling into that trap. So much so, beloved, that don't think yourself unable to fall into that trap because you do understand Peter fell into that trap. And then Paul says, not only did Peter fall into it, but Barnabas fell into that trap. Because when those Judaizers came, these Judaizers came, remember in Galatians chapter 2 when Paul said these Judaizers came, these are these folks, they came down to Antioch, quoting the Bible, and Peter's like, huh. That sounds good. God did say that. Barnabas, what you think? Yeah, you're right. That's right. They did say, God did say that. 
Because it's a trap. It's a trap of the enemy. And notice, notice, notice here how this legalism manifests itself. It manifests itself in, in various ways in our lives and in the church. But in particular, in this case, it manifested itself in the area of salvation, saying that in order to be saved, you must be keeping some aspect of the law of God. That's one form of legalism. There are others. We don't have time this morning because you're already going to complain I'm going to go too long. So I, I, I cut that part out of the sermon. But I wanted to. I cut that out, Phil. It won't make much difference, though. I got a feeling. Notice here. This form of legalism that has to do with salvation, what it does, it leads us to believe that we must perform certain outward requirements or prerequisites for salvation. And there's certain things that we must conform to. Here they were saying that you must conform to this being circumcised. This outward conformity must happen in order for you to be saved. We use other things. We say things like baptism. You must be baptized in order to be saved or you must stop cursing in order to be saved or you must stop drinking in order to be saved or stop smoking in order to be saved. We use all these outward conformity things and put that yoke on people and say in order to be saved, you have to conform outwardly to these realities. Ain't no different than what these folks were doing. We do it too. Notice what they say. Verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Moses, you cannot be saved. Now notice what they say. You must be circumcised, but not just circumcised. You got to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. In other words, it's not just any circumcision. You got to be circumcised in our building. With our instruments, the way that we circumcise. Times have you heard that? Can't be saved unless you baptize in our water, and we do the baptism in our building. Can't be saved unless you come to this church and hear this message. That's what they did. Not just circumcised. You got to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Then they repeated it. They repeated it when they got up to the Jerusalem council in verse 5 because there was no resolving this thing in Antioch because Paul wasn't backing down. There was no resolving this in Antioch. So they said, brothers, we're going to take this up to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem, what do these people do? They repeat their arguments in verse 5. After Paul and Barnabas had, record, had rehearsed everything that the Lord had done in the Gentiles and bringing them to faith and the works that God had done through them to the Gentiles, these brothers in Jerusalem said, yeah, but it is necessary to circumcise them. In order and to have them keep the law of Moses. Beloved, what this really is, is Bondage. And it's, it's sad and terrible because it is bondage to cultural and religious norms. And we do the same thing. 
It put people in bondage to cultural and religious customs and norms. We make them have to conform to external conformities. And by doing that, we put people in bondage. Not just to their sin, because they don't ever get out of that, but now on top of their sin, now they're in bondage to our assessment of their sins. What does the gospel do? The gospel is the very opposite of that. For the gospel is not bondage, the gospel is freedom. When people hear the gospel, they should hear freedom. That's what John says in John, that's what Jesus said in John chapter 8, right, verse 36. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Salvation is freedom. Salvation is freedom from the requirements of the law. Salvation is freedom from the requirements of men and women's opinions. Salvation is freedom from having to do more. It is freedom to trust Christ more. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. Because, beloved, salvation is by grace. And this is what they insisted upon. You see that in verse 11? This is beautiful. But we believe that we put themselves in it. We believe, this is Peter speaking, we, will, we believe we will be saved. And Peter got, it, got his mind right between Antioch and Jerusalem. He listened to Paul's rebuke and he got his mind right. By the time he got back to Jerusalem, he said, oh my goodness, Paul was right. He got back to Jerusalem for the meeting, and Peter says, but we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saved by grace, beloved. What that means is that salvation is undeserved. Grace is the favor of God. That's what it means. It's the favor of God. And therefore, it is contrary to our experiences every day in this world. Absolutely contrary to the experiences that you and I have in this world. Because the favor that we get in this world, we earn it. Yeah, we believe that. We believe that. You know, you got favor with your, in school that you got A's, guess what? It's because you earned it. It's not a grace. It's just gifting you A's. You earned it. At the end of the week or the end of the month when they give you a paycheck, how many people go up to the boss and say, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't deserve this. Are you kidding me? You, get, you receive that because you believe you earned it. Even the Christmas bonus. In your mind, you're thinking, that's right. You had not paid me enough all year anyway. I really earned this. This is our experience. 
Have we received something in this world? We're thinking that we earn it. And beloved, this is not the way with God. Nothing, nothing could be farther from the truth when it comes to our relationship with God. You earn nothing. How many of you seen the the musical, The Sound of Music? It's beautiful. If you hadn't seen it, you need to watch it. It's beautiful. There's a scene in The Sound of Music with the captain and Maria. I've discovered that they have fallen in love. And so they're, they're out and they're singing to each other the song, Something Good. This is what it says. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Because nothing ever comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. You know, people live like that. People live. Christians live like that, thinking that somehow God's blessings on their lives, it's like he's doing these checks and and balances in your life, and he's giving you these blessings, and you're looking around, and you're thinking, man, I must have done something good. Nothing, beloved, nothing could be farther from the truth. Look back into your youth and childhood and you will find that you have done nothing good. And yet, there he is, loving you, whether or not he should. Because as you look into your childhood, There was nothing, Sheena. Nothing good. Salvation, beloved, is the one thing in this world where no one can claim that they earned it. No one. It's by grace. It's not just by grace, beloved. It's by grace through faith. That's what they say. It's by grace through faith. Salvation, then, is favor through faith. That's what it is. It's the favor of God through faith in Christ. That's it. That's all. It's trust in Christ. Trust not, therefore, in what you can do, what you have done, but only trust in him. That's all Jesus adds. That's the simplicity of the gospel is that is all Jesus asks is this, that you believe you need him. That's it. That's it. You want to boil it down to a nutshell and make the gospel as simple as possible. You admit you need Jesus. And you can be saved. That's it. Ain't no cleaning up. Ain't no doing anything else. Ain't no getting baptized. Ain't ain't nobody. You don't have to go out and get circumcised, guys. Don't worry. (laughs) Just admit that you need Jesus. The difference between the believer, beloved, and the unbeliever is not circumcision. It's not baptism. 
It's not where one gives his money and the other one doesn't. It's not what one is doing on Sunday morning and the other one isn't. The difference is that one knows they need Jesus and the other one won't admit it. That's the difference. This is the simplicity of the gospel. Wish we would recover that. Do you know the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18? The only difference is that one admitted to needing Jesus and the other one didn't. You know the difference between the, the, the rich young ruler later on in that chapter and Peter? The only difference is that Peter admitted to needing Jesus and the rich young ruler wouldn't. It's really the only difference. That's when you admit that you need Jesus, everything changes. And the gospel becomes real. The gospel becomes real in your life. That's why the song is right that says, not, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fondness, a fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. That's it. That's it. That you need Jesus. I mean, really, beloved. That's really what it boils down to. Are you willing to admit that you need the Lord? I mean, this is, this is the problem that you run into with people as you're sharing the gospel. And they put up the barriers and they put up the walls because ultimately they won't admit that they need a Savior. But in coming to admit that you need Jesus, you are primed as a recipient of his grace and mercy. I need you. Oh, Lord, how I need you. Every hour I need you. That's the prayer. That's the cry of the Christian. And the person who needs Jesus, you need to leave him alone. Stop putting a whole bunch of rules and regulations upon their lives. If they admit that they need Jesus, the Lord's going to take care of that. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. If they really admit that they need him, our job is to show them how much they do. By telling them how much we do. I can't live a moment without the Savior. I need him every hour, every moment of every day. And the more that I acknowledge I need him, the more my need of him grows and the more sufficient becomes his grace. I need the Lord. I need the Lord. You need the Lord. We all need the Lord. And that's the gospel. 
I need Jesus. And therefore, and therefore, let conscience not allow you to linger. And don't dream of being more fit. Conforming to what some people have told you. She must do in order to be a Christian. But acknowledge, as the song says, that the only, the only requirement that Jesus has is you say, Lord, I need you because I'm a sinner. I need you because I'm a sinner. Every person, by the words of Jesus' own testimony in Luke 18, Every person who says that, acknowledges that this morning, will go out of here justified in the sight of God. Because they have acknowledged their need of him has cried out for that mercy. And he is faithful. He is faithful to answer you today, right now. When you say, I need you, Lord, I need you. I want to pray for us. That's only about a third of the sermon, but that's enough. All right, that's enough. We're going to pray. And let's, let's end on that note this morning.